Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, well, welcome back to the the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 3. And the title of our study today is God Save the King. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you first for this time that you've given to us to open your word uh, to consider uh, what it not only what it says lord but also what it means and lord how it applies to our lives today so we we thank you for this time that you've given to us we pray lord that you would open our eyes and open our ears to see to know and to trust what you have revealed in this text and what it has for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 3. Psalm 3 uh, starts out by saying this, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And this is the reading of God's holy, precious word. There are few crimes more horrifying than when a son attacks his own father. On April 16, 2012, 19-year-old Tucker Soprano broke into his parents' home in Dearborn, Michigan at 3 a.m., Tucker broke in with his friend Mitchell Young looking for drug money. They even planned what they would do practicing the break-in when nobody was there. The plan was to kill the Soprano family, steal the contents of the family safe, and flee to Mexico. The police found Tucker's father, Robert Soprano, beaten to death. His mother, Rose, and his brother, Salvatore, had been savagely attacked but survived. Tucker was arrested a short time after this incident, What a horrifying crime. In fact, there's even a name for killing one's own father. It's called patricide. It is an especially gruesome, wicked sin when a son turns his hand against the man who gave him life. This sort of horror is the background for Psalm 3. In fact, the superscription gives us the historical setting for these words, saying this, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. This is the first psalm with a superscription. The word psalm in this case is the Hebrew word mizmor, which means a song that is accompanied by stringed instruments. 
of the 73 Psalms we, we have that are written by David, 13 include historical details. Here we have a reference to Absalom's rebellion. In fact, these superscriptions are part of the Psalms. They're numbered as verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. In the New Testament, Jesus treated the superscription of Psalm 110 as if it were authoritative scripture because it is. The Holy Spirit inspired these superscriptions to give important background details to understand a particular psalm. Now, not all of the psalms have a superscription, but when they do, we need to notice them. We need to make note of them. David's flight from Absalom was a particularly terrifying, even horrifying moment in his life. The insurrection was unexpected. It came at a time when David was strong and well-established as, as a king. It could be said that uh, the Israel was something of a superpower in the region at this time. But this attack didn't come from uh, an outside enemy. It came from David's own family on him. It was all too common in this culture at this time for a son to murder his father to take the throne. Even mighty Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who laid siege to Jerusalem, was killed by two of his own sons, 2 Chronicles 32, 21 tells us. Now, the story of Absalom is found in 2 Samuel 15 through 19, which if you want to go back into the archives, we worked our way through the book of 2 Samuel. So you can go back and listen to those studies. Absalom had, had blood on his hands years before he had murdered his brother Amnon, and now Absalom began plotting to take the throne. While David was busy governing the nation, Absalom charmed the people and won their hearts. The rebellion began in Hebron, about 25 miles from Jerusalem, and the people of Israel rallied to him there. And David barely escaped with his life. He fled uh, his palace with the men loyal to him, walking up the Mount of Olives, weeping barefoot, and with his head covered. Along the way, one of Saul's relatives, a man named Shimei, cursed David up and down. Second Samuel 16, 7 through 8 says this, And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. And the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. In whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now all of David's enemies, they came out against him. Any man who had a, had a grudge on him rallied to Absalom. Most of the people are swept up into the current and joined the uprising against David. David and his followers marched all the night and by daybreak had crossed the Jordan. This is the context for Psalm 3. David's flight from Absalom was not a vague sense of disappointment that life hadn't turned out the way that he wanted it. It, it meant uh, pumping adrenaline, a fight or flight response. This flight was the bone weariness of a, of a forced march, the stabbing pain of betrayal. And David asked, who can I trust? Where can I go? Is there even a spy in this moment in my camp? Will one of these men turn me over to Absalom. And to make it worse, 2 Samuel 18, 5 and 33 tell us that King David loved his son Absalom. David was a, was a father. He was heartbroken. And when the soldiers went out 
to fight against Absalom and his army. He begged his generals to go easy on the young man, to spare his life. He was torn. His heart was torn into pieces as a father. Now, thousands of men died in this civil war. Something died inside of David, too. His own son wanted him dead. Absalom had broken his heart. The faith of Psalm 3 was forged in a white-hot furnace. God literally delivered David from death and betrayal. And so it's no accident that Psalm 3 comes immediately after Psalm 2, that great song of God's king. The second psalm predicts that rulers and nations will rise against God's anointed. And Psalm 3 begins to chronicle what God's anointed actually experiences in this world. This is what life is like for God's king. He is betrayed by those closest to him. And as David reflected on the way that God rescued him, we see his complaint, his confidence, his calm, his cry. David is not just speaking for himself but he is pointing forward to the person and work of Christ. First, let's consider David's complaint in verses 1 through 2 of our psalm today. And, and, these, and our first two verses of Psalm 3 said this, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God's Salah. David's complaint hinges on the word many. He has many foes. Many rose against him. Many claim that God had rejected him. David is totally outnumbered. He's totally overwhelmed. He's surrounded by many foes. And so he's describing his enemies as oppressors. In fact, the word here has the sense of people pressing down on David, closing in on him like a hunted man. He is backed into a corner. His enemies are squeezing like the coils of a boa constrictor. He's hemmed in. There's no escape. And to make it worse, David's enemies are not foreigners. He had fought battles against the, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Edomites. But these, this battle was against fellow Jews. The tribe of Benjamin jumped at the chance because King Saul had been from their tribe. They resented David, the son of Jesse, from the tribe of Judah. And this was time, their time, to give some payback to David. So the uprising grew and it multiplied as his friends betrayed him, including many in his own army. But the worst betrayal of all, though, was the accusation that God had abandoned him. As they closed in for the kill, maybe they thought that, that God had tossed David aside because of his sin with Bathsheba, and God wouldn't help him now. And this brings us to a very important point. When you and I have sinned, it's easy for us to think that God wants nothing more to do with us. That is hopelessness. And so they taunted David that God had abandoned his anointed one. Today, there are, there are many people that are in this camp. They think because of what they've done in their past, because of their failures, because of their sins, that, that the Lord no longer is interested in them. But we need to understand that this, that idea undercuts the gospel of grace entirely. It wasn't because I did something and therefore, I merited God's favor, God's help. It's often thought, to put it in another way, God helps those 
you know, who, who can't help themselves. Or God will help me. If I give God a little bit of help, he'll, he'll somehow help me. But this idea undercuts the gospel of grace. It wasn't because I merited forgiveness. It wasn't because I merited the righteousness of God that, that Christ came as a baby and paid the penalty in my place and for my sin. It wasn't because I deserved it. He did it in spite of me deserving it. He did it so that my sins could forever be absolved before the Father. And this is what makes the gospel so controversial, so countercultural. Instead of getting what I deserve, God Himself took my place. He paid the penalty for me, for you. He paid that penalty. This is this is grace. And this is what the atonement does. It, it covers over our sin. That's why Jesus said, and, and what, what Jesus says, one of his, his last four words or so, one of his last words in John uh, 1930, it is finished. That's why that is so vital to get. It wasn't maybe Jesus did it. Jesus says it is finished. It's it's signed, it's sealed, it's delivered. Not because I deserve it, but in, but in spite of my deserving. And this is why, to come full circle, this, this idea to think that, that God wants nothing to do with us because we have sinned, it, it, it's, it's not only the very definition of hopelessness, it's not true. It's not true. Jesus came on a rescue mission. Luke 19.10 says that very thing, that, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to draw them to God. He came to bring them to himself at the appointed hour, even to use John's language, that, that appointed hour when he would suffer and he would be beaten, he would be he would be mocked. He would be brutally betrayed, heartbreakingly so. And he paid that penalty for our sin. So no, what the cross does is it, is it proves to us that God cares for us. If he didn't care, he wouldn't have come to die and to execute the Father's will in his death in our place for our sin and to be buried and to rise again on the third day. And even now, he is an ascended Lord. He is our intercessor, our mediator between God and man. And he is our soon returning king. In fact, what's even amazing about this, if we flip over to 1 John 1, what we see is those in 1 John 1, 8, those are deceived who don't think they have sin. And yet what John says is in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and it cleanses of all righteousness. The next verse in 1 John 2, 1 tells us that we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
And so we have one who is before the throne of God, who is our high priest, who is our mediator, who is our advocate, whoever lives to plead our cause on account of the righteousness of Christ for you and I and for those who think that, that God doesn't care for them because he doesn't, he doesn't care about us because we've sinned. The very ministry of Jesus as an advocate shouts and declares to us that yes he he cares that 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 we sin and that we must confess it but also he is pleading our cause on account of the righteousness of Christ oh so don't think dear christian today that god is disinterested in you in the midst of your sin understand that that he cares and that even now, he is interceding for you as your advocate and high priest. Well, David's complaint, it ends with the word salah. This, this means a pause in the singing while the music continued as the people sang this song in the temple. This was a moment to reflect on David's hopeless situation. Many foes, many rising, many accusing. How would he respond? How might you have responded in his situation? Well, next, let's consider David's confidence. David was confident in the face of this overwhelming flood. Psalm 3.3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. David is confident in the Lord's protection. As a shield, God absorbs the blows that are aimed at him. God is blocking the blows that, that come from the front and beyond. God is a shield about me. Our text says, The Lord was watching his back. You see, as, as God's people, we are in Christ. If you go to Romans 8, 31 through 39, notice it's five or six times that it's because of the work of Christ. It's because we are in him, which is the language of union with Christ, that we are held fast. We are held secure. And if we fast, if we flip over a few pages to Ephesians from Romans, in, in chapter 6, uh, Paul gives that, that great teaching about the armor of God. And one of the, one of the very facets of that, of that armor is a breastplate of righteousness that, that we are given because of the righteousness of Christ, the helmet of salvation, that we are to shod our feet with the gospel of peace and so much more. And we're to arm ourselves with the only offensive weapon, which is the word of God, which Hebrews 4.12 says is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we are to take up that shield. But it, it's important to understand that, that God is all of those things described in the armor. God is a warrior that the book of Exodus tells us. He is the one who goes before us. He is the one who fights on our behalf. So we can trust him. We can trust him. We can be confident that, that he is with us. He is for us. Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. David is confident of his relationship with God. In verse 3, he says, You, O Lord, are my 
glory, David's honor and dignity came from being the one that God had anointed as king. David knew that the Lord was going to vindicate him. He could lift his head. And in the ancient world, kings would humiliate their enemies by putting their foot on the neck of a conquered king. This sounds bad to us, but in a culture based on shame and honor, this was the ultimate humiliation. To be helpless and vulnerable, shamefully beneath the sole of your enemy's foot. David was confident that God is a lifter of my head, verse 3. He would not be humiliated under Absalom's foot. God would honor him. And, and how could David be so sure of this? Was this a gut feeling that, that David had some sort of intuition, insight that he had? No. David trusted in the promises of God. He knew that God had been faithful to him and, and as a result, he, and, and faithful to Israel. And it, therefore, he knew that God was going to be faithful to him. And not only that, God's faithfulness is demonstrated in his covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would establish his kingdom and place one of his descendants on his throne forever. And Psalm 2 echoes this Davidic covenant as God pledged to defend his anointed king in Psalm 2, 5 through 6, which says that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And David's, David's confidence echoes this promise in Psalm 3, 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Salah. David literally says, my voice cried out to the Lord. That's an audible shout. And if someone tries to mug you on the street, you're going to cry out for help, and then you're going to grab your cell phone and call 911. This is the idea here. David yelled for help. And God answered. His enemies tried to convince him that, that the Lord would not save him. David knew better. God always keeps his word. David, David's confidence is something to think about here. The, the word Salah at the end of verse 4 is a time for reflection on the promises of God. And there are so many promises. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. John 14 1 through 3 the, the, in fact one of the, the the opening pat one of the opening chapters if you will of of this great teaching that Jesus gives his disciples as he's going to go to Gethsemane and then to the cross and he's going to pay the penalty in our place and for our sin and in, and in John 14 1 through 3 Jesus says let not your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. You see, God's promises are, are tied to God's uh, unchanging character. In Titus 1-2, Paul says to Titus that God can never lie. See, God's nature he is immutable he's never changing he can never change he he is the same hebrews 13 5 and 9 as i quoted he is the same yesterday today and forevermore that that means that we can take his promises to the bank you see the same god who heard david will hear you today do you trust him though do you trust him like david 
did. Next, David's calm. David's confidence was the source of David's calm. Psalm 3, 5 through 6 says, I laid down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Anxiety will keep you awake at night. I, I know this from personal experience. Perhaps you do as well. In fact, sometimes I, I wake up in the middle of the night and, and I have a hard time going back to sleep. And I, I just end up praying for various people, for various situations. But more often than not, there's a spiritual root to my sleeplessness. When I lie tossing and turning in bed, I, I've learned to take inventory of my soul. What do I need to trust the Lord with? What do I need to turn over to the Lord? And I remind myself of biblical truth again and again and again. I might not be able to put my finger exactly on what's happening but reminding myself of the truth again and again and again is the first step to strengthen my faith to get to the point where i can sleep soundly david's sleep is a beautiful evidence that he was resting he was trusting the promises of god his mind was at rest he allowed his body to rest because he knew that the god who sustains him never sleeps david's sleep doesn't mean we should fold our hands and not do anything for ourselves uh, we should you know in the words of that famous phrase just let go and let god god expects us to be wise in fact when david fled from absalom he crossed the jordan during the night to safety second samuel 17 22 says by daybreak not one was left who would not cross the jordan david didn't sleep the first night he fled from absalom but at some point later during the rebellion, he lay down and he slept. Now we need to be wise. We need to make decisions. We need to take precautions when we can. It doesn't mean that we leave our door open at night or, or the doors un, unlocked. We lock the doors. We shut. make sure that the garage door is shut all the way. But when we have done what we can, we lie down and sleep in our sleep. In our sleep, we trust the Lord. We trust the Lord. David's Next, let's talk about David's cry. David's calm led to David's cry. Psalm 3.7 says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David echoed the war cry of Israel. When Israel broke camp into the wilderness, the Ark of the Covenant led the way as Moses would pray in Numbers 10.35, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. God's presence was not limited to the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence was also with his anointed king. And so David called out his battle cry in verse 7, Arise, O Lord. God would shame and humiliate his enemies by slapping them on the cheek. He would disarm them a mighty lion is powerless if his teeth are broken god would break their fangs and even in this david's heart still beats for the good of his people he could have been utterly vindictive you rejected me and you followed absalom instead he treats, teaches them to trust the lord in verse 8 it says salvation belongs to the lord your blessing be on your people salah 
God would bless his people through the king they rejected. By delivering David from their foolish rebellion, God did them good. Man, we need to ask the question, what does this mean for us today? And as we do, uh, we, we can imitate it. One, one thing that we can say is we can imitate David's faith and trust the promises of God today like David did. We have those several ways we can do this. On another level, there, there is something more to Psalm 3 that we need to understand. David's deliverance from Absalom was a physical rescue from real, from deadly danger. He called out to God to save his life, and God literally saved his life. The problem is, is that many times God does not save the lives of his people when we call out to him. God doesn't always deliver us like he delivered David. Sometimes we lie down to sleep and we don't wake up. And so what does this psalm mean to us? We often think of the way God rescued Peter from prison. He sent an angel to open the doors and to lead him to safety in Acts 12, 6 through 19. But just days before, one of the other apostles was not rescued. Acts 12, 1 through 3 says, About the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw the police of Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Peter was rescued. James was not. This is a story that's repeated again and again and again throughout the, the centuries of God's people. Two young men from the same church go off to war. One returns while the other is killed. Both men love the Lord. Both families pray fervently for them to be to come back home. One, one was delivered like David, the other was not. We can expand on this to other trials, to other dangers. A loved one is in an accident, but does not recover even though we pray for them fervently. A woman calls out to the Lord for her marriage, but her husband still leaves her. A man is, is painted into a corner by office politics. He calls out to God, but he still loses his job. And so we ask the question, where is God in the midst of these situations? It often seems like our enemies win. We're not always delivered from our trouble and danger like David was when Absalom betrayed him. God doesn't always rescue us from physical danger when we call to him. So how can we be strengthened by this psalm? What does David's rescue mean for us today? And if we're going to be fed by this psalm, we need to remember that David was a model of a greater king in Jesus who was to come. As God's anointed king, David pointed forward to the Lord Jesus. And when Peter preached at Pentecost, he said David was a prophet in Acts, 12, uh, Acts 2, 29-30. Tertullian, that, that great North American, African, that great North African theologian from the 2nd century said about David, he sings to us of Christ. And through his voice, Christ indeed also sang concerning himself. And so Psalm 3 is a prophecy pointing us forward to Christ. David's experience as God's anointed is a model for Jesus' experience as God's anointed. Charles Spurgeon says this by way of reminder for us. Remember that David in this was a type of the Lord Jesus. He too fled. He too passed over the brook Kidron when his own people were in rebellion against him and with a feeble band. Well, as we wrap up our, our time together, it's important to say a few more things. God is faithful. We may not have 
all the answers to the complexities uh, of why all things happen. God has a hidden will. He has revealed himself, yes, but he Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that, that God has kept some things to himself in his wisdom because he knows that we will not understand it. And yet in his revealed will, revealed in the word of God, he has told us enough. Enough for us to know him. Enough for us to trust him. And as we... As I talked about earlier, God is good. And in his goodness, he has revealed himself so that we can know for certain and we can trust him and we can have confidence in him. And so God is faithful over all of life. We may not know why things happen. And even behind the scenes, God is doing 10,000 million things that we may not be aware of. And we might only see one of them. And yet, God is good. God is faithful. God is, God is sovereign over all of our lives. He is orchestrating in His providence the very situations of our lives. And so we can trust Him. We can hold on to Him. We can cling to Him because He is faithful. So whether we are awake, whether we're asleep, God is faithful. Whether we awake again in the morning and we give thanks to the Lord, which we should do, because he's the one that causes us to wake. And whether we fall asleep and we don't wake up again and we are immediately carried into the presence of God, God is good. God is good. In the midst of, in the midst of trying times, in the midst of the hardest times, when it seems like God is disinterested for us, it's, it's actually God is carrying us through those things. He's carrying the, the, the mother who had a miscarriage through the miscarriage to trust him, to hope in him, to cling in him. He's carrying the person who has struggled with deep grief and hurt and pain and a broken heart. He's not just there with him, but beside them and before them and behind them. He's in the midst of all of the hurt, all of the pain, all of the struggles. And even in the good times, God is there. So whether we're awake or asleep or going through a difficult time or a difficult season in life or even a good time in our lives, God is faithful. What that means is that he loves and he cares for his own. God is faithful. That means that we can take his promises to the bank. We can remember who the Lord is. We can remember how he has been faithful to Israel, faithful to the people in the New Testament, faithful throughout church history, faithful in our own lives, faithful in the lives of others around us. And we can be encouraged in the Lord. We can encourage our hearts. As Hebrews 3 tells us to encourage one another while we have yet today. And so let us encourage one another. Let us stir each other up to love and good deeds because of Christ. Because we put, our, put before us the promises of God revealed in Scripture. And so we remind ourselves again and again and again. And, and in fact, the more that, <coughs> that we remind ourselves that even the more are our hearts warmed, 
our affections stirred. And we have an even more of a desire to go out and to tell of the glories of a king who has come, of a king who has paid the penalty for us in our place and for our sin and been buried and risen again. And even now he is an ascended Lord and Savior. He is the mediator of the new covenant, our intercessor, our our advocates, our high priests. And he is, Jesus is, our soon returning king. And so you can trust him. He is faithful to his revealed word. And so trust him, trust him in the midst of whatever circumstances you are in today. Whether, whether they're good, whether they're hard, whether they're challenging, trust him. He is enough and he always will be. And let's pray. Lord, we are reminded today and even instructed that your promises are enough for us because your word is enough for us. And your word reveals the person and the work of Christ alone. And your son's work is sufficient. So not only is your word sufficient, but also your son is sufficient. So Lord, stir up our hearts. Remind us of the the promises of God, whether, we, whether we're falling asleep, or whether we're awake, whether we're facing a difficult situation with our boss or work or, or a difficult situation in our marriage and, or, or whatever the situation is, Lord, remind us of the promises of God in your word. And may we be stirred by way of reminder from your word that you do are are not disinterested in us, but that you are faithful, faithful to deliver on your promises because you are a faithful God. So Lord, help us. Remind our hearts. Stir our affections afresh. And all for the glory of your name and for the good, for the good of others. May we be reminded and may we go and tell of your great glory, the glory of the only one in the Jesus who can save us from our sins. The only one who's been, who, who's suffered and paid the penalty in our place and for our sin and been buried and risen again. The only one who is soon returning for your own. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.